0: Welcome to Destination CMO, a podcast about growth, business, and the power of marketing with your host, Vincent Fanvan, a three-time chief marketing officer, member of the Forbes Communication Council, and a 40 Under 40 Award recipient. On this show, we invite our guests to share the most important stories happening today in business and tech, told through the lens of a senior marketing leader. If you enjoy this episode, don't forget to like and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Hey everybody, welcome and to this episode of Destination CMO. So our guest today is David Menefee. He's a marketing leader with a really diverse background across both like leadership and brand strategy. And that started actually with his career in the US Naval Academy. He was a US Marine Corps member where he built the foundation of his leadership skills. I'm so excited to be able to dig into that and more because after years of marketing experience at companies like Procter & Gamble and Centene. He's now focused on consulting. He's leveraging his experience to guide other organizations in navigating the complexities of the business landscape. Hey, David, so great to have you on the show. and Welcome. It's great to be here, Vincent. Good to see you. So oftentimes when we kick off this show, you know, I'll ask people why they went into marketing, but really like the foundation of your career started before that and you served the country and thank you so much for doing that. How did that all come to be?
2: Yeah. And thank you so much for your tax dollars. <laughs> <laughs> I served in the U.S. Marine Corps from 1993 to 2000 and. I got married about a year after I I commissioned and I was gone for three out of the first five years of our marriage. And Kelly and I said, hey, we love the Marine Corps in serving the country, but maybe this is not the right long-term lifestyle for us. And so when I resigned from the Marine Corps, I said, I need a job. I need to find employment somewhere. I didn't really want to go back to school. And I said, well, there's probably three main ways you can go look for a job. Number one, you know where you want to live and you go find a job there. And at 29 years old, I wasn't ready to settle down for the rest of my life. Number two, you've got a skill set and you find a job within that skill set. And as an artillery officer, I love blowing stuff up. I love gunpowder, but not a lot of call for that in corporate America. So I threw that out the window. And I said, well, I could also target companies that I think are going to help me in my career. So I'm going to skip the MBA. I'm going to go to find an organization that will be an on the job MBA. And so I was looking at core functional areas with top companies. So I was looking at Six Sigma Black Belt program at General Electric, operations with GM. And then I stumbled across brand management at Procter & Gamble. And P&G luckily had a great junior military officer recruiting program. I came into the company through that recruiting network.
1: That's great. I mean, the career progression and kind of, I think the big thing that I take away from what you're saying is really like the transferable skills, transferable skills. And I mean, let's go into a little bit of like the value of an MBA program, because historically, especially if you were going into investment banking, heavy finance strategy, consulting type background, an MBA was essentially had to be on the path for many CMOs today and many marketing leaders today, they start out with some type of oftentimes liberal arts, but not necessarily liberal arts type of background in undergrad. And for myself, like my crash course and how to get stronger in strategy and leadership was essentially on the job training and I've been fortunate enough to work for larger organizations that have had really established training and leadership executive training type programs. But what's your perspective on the value of an MBA for marketers?
2: Yeah, I think MBAs are valuable for anyone. Education is valuable for anyone. I have a bachelor of science degree with an English major. So I'm one of these, Weird whole brain guys, and I think there are a (laughs) lot of marketers that are whole brain people, right? Because in the marketing function, you need to have strong analytical skills, but you also need to have strong creative skills. I taught a class at at P and G to young assistant brand managers called Success at P and G, and my belief is that ABMs or brand managers or general managers really only do two things: they lead. And they solve problems and they solve problems creatively and, and analytically, like we discussed. And so for me, coming out of the Naval Academy and the Marine Corps and having a, a strong understanding of what good leadership looked like, as well as what my personal leadership style looks like. And I think mm-hmm. that's something for everybody to remember. Your leadership has to be true to you. Uh, no two leaders lead in the same way because we all have different personalities and the groups we're leading all have different cultures and different personalities. So we have to figure out the right way to get across in life. I mean, this is not just about business, but it's about all things. You know, Vincent, you mentioned that you've got a a four-year-old and a one-year-old. I've got a 23 and a 21-year-old and I didn't solve the same parenting crisis with each child in the same way because they have different personalities. And I think that's one thing to remember, regardless of what functional area you're in, your key to success is leading effectively. And that includes collaboration and communication and coaching and unlocking the power of each individual to do what they do best. If you're the smartest person in the organization, you're limited by yourself. (laughs) But if you have other smart people in the organization, then that's awesome, right? I can only be the best version of myself but the people around me can add their best versions of themselves and then we've got something that's really powerful and interesting as we're looking to solve problems and to drive growth.
1: That's actually as I think through some of the training that I've gone through in the past my good friend Rob who's a leadership consultant has this concept of like the switchbacks in your career. You start out and as you're climbing a ladder that's not always a ladder that's straight vertical a <laughs> little bit more like shoots and ladders where you have those shoots that can yes. bring you yes. back down but you know at every single one of those switchbacks there's a role change and that might be going from an individual contributor to a first time people leader for going from a first time people leader to managing people who manage people But like one of those switchback moments for me was the moment where you go from, if you're an individual contributor, it's strong for you to be the smartest one on the team. And that's kind of like in your early career, like how success is measured. But then later in your career, it's actually stronger if you're not the smartest person on your team, because your ability to be able to recruit and surround yourself with diverse thought leaders and people who really round out your own flat spots is really like a completely different mindset as you grow as a marketing leader.
2: Yeah, I think that's important. And one of my core beliefs is that everyone around me is better than I am, and I've got something to learn from them, but I'm better than they are too in some things, which means that I have a responsibility to teach. Absolutely. So when you're doing organization design and development, and while I was at Centene, my team went from 12 people to over 200 Uh So every year we were assessing the needs and the capabilities, capacity and the culture of the organization to determine what we needed for the coming years. And it was constantly looking for what is the new skill set that we need more of? What is the current skill set that we need more or less of? Uh And the way we thought about ourselves as a $5 billion business, could not be the same way that we thought about ourselves as a $100 billion business. It's fundamentally, you're in very different spaces. So I think your point, Vincent, about accepting the switchbacks and growing and learning together is right on. And I think for me, that's been part of the backbone of my team building philosophy.
1: I think one of the other areas I think about is who is responsible for career development. You have some individuals who they don't take an active role in that. And they're really relying on almost like formal company development programs Mm -hmm. for that education. And then on the opposite side, gosh, if you relied on formal company development opportunities and you were working for a startup, those programs just don't exist at that stage. And so you better take a more active role. How do you think about that balance and like where are the practices where you've seen high propensity individuals do differently than those who stall out or plateau in their career?
2: I mean, it's a wonderful and really deep question. Each individual has their primary responsibility for their career. Even in a promote from within hierarchical organization like Procter & Gamble is, it does a great job at developing leaders and brand directors and general managers. We still have choices along the way to make which job we take, if we're willing to relocate or not do we want to stay in the line management position or do we want to do something more on the innovative side do we want to do some cross-functional training Mm -hmm. i think marketing in particular you really need to take responsibility for your own development because as a function within any organization marketing is the one that is most different from industry to industry and even within sectors if you think about a chief financial officer Those responsibilities are pretty much the same regardless of the industry. But if you think about a chief marketing officer, I'm like, well, what type of marketing is it? Is it product management, product development, brand management? Is it sales and marketing? Is it marketing and communication? Are we business to consumer or business to business? The variations in the marketing function are super fascinating. Now, I'm not saying that to say that leaders don't have a responsibility for their people. They do. And I think some of the problems that I see when I talk to C-suite leaders across industries is that their organization has failed to succession plan properly. And then all of a sudden it's time for you to retire or move on as the CMO and you've got nobody inside that you've developed to take over for you. Well, that puts the organization in a really tough spot to bring somebody in from the outside who doesn't know the business, there's a learning curve, et cetera. So I think once you hit the vice president level in particular inside an organization, part of your job has to be, and this is not just on an annual basis, this is on a constant basis. is think about who's going to step up when key people leave the organization and make sure that you're preparing people to be able to do that.
1: And I've seen that across roles at all levels. I know companies are definitely more purposeful at a director and VP level in terms of succession planning and having more formal cadences and conversations and documentation around that. But even for somebody early career, you might be a manager on a team ready to take that move into a senior manager director role. But you know, if there's not a great plan and you haven't helped build up your team, that's been one of the, I think for top performers, one of the top reasons I've seen promotions delayed or take a little bit longer to happen because of that transition. You've touched on a few other things, the role of the CFO across industries being somewhat similar in terms of like the roles and responsibilities. And you're right. And you didn't even bring up the two massive differences for D2C marketers, consumer marketers versus B2B marketers, which many times are two completely different worlds. The other thing that's kind of funny, a little lighthearted marketing humor is nobody thinks they could do the CFO's job if they're not on a finance team, but almost everybody thinks they can do the <laughs> yeah, marketer's yeah, job.
2: Yeah, everybody <laughs> thinks there's a, bar- a market. I just want to tell one quick story back to the career development standpoint. When I was a, an associate director on the Duracell business, I started working on that business shortly after P&G acquired Gillette. And so you're assessing the organization and Gillette's system was a little bit different than P&G's. And I got to the point where the brand manager working for me was awesome. And I was giving him more and more stuff. And the guy I was reporting to didn't want to give anything up that he was working on. So I actually wrote a recommendation to eliminate my job which the company was happy to take, right? <laughs> happy get to it, evaluate. Get of, to get rid of that FTE and that cost center. But PNG luckily found a spot for me on a different business on pet care. And working on the Yukonuba brand was transformational for me. And so sometimes it might seem like the safe thing to do to stay in role. And by the way, that happened in 2008 with the financial crisis coming down. So there was a lot of uncertainty from an employment perspective, but... It was one of the points in my career that I think really made a difference for me at that time personally, in terms of my personal growth and opportunity to work with dogs is just awesome. So, <laughs> and I didn't know that's where I was going. So sometimes you take a risk, but I think as long as you're pushing the people around you forward, I think the universe is a way of taking care of the folks that are doing good things
1: yeah absolutely and you know you think about the traits of a leader in terms of your role and your responsibility is to your customers to other employees and the experience that they have as well as to the shareholders of an organization you touched on earlier like one of the catalysts to potentially helping you move your career move forward in your career is the open-mindedness to be able to relocate i did make a move from california over to nashville tennessee before nashville was cool And that definitely was not something that I had planned to do, but looking back on it 10 years later, actually did end up accelerating my career. I almost feel bad for individuals who graduate from college today and go straight into a full remote job because there's something, and Hamilton said it best, there's something about being in the room where it happens, right? Yeah,
2: yeah. Well, and I think you've probably studied Bell Labs in the early days of Hewlett Packard, like most of the marketers have. So much of their innovation was driven by cross-functional people intermixing, Uh right? Whether it's at the cafeteria or the water cooler, there's no such thing as a virtual water cooler. And I think it is nice to have the capability of working remotely or in a hybrid situation, but I think there is something potentially that's being lost in full remote organizations. I think it becomes very transactional on how the work happens rather than operating at the relationship level. And as marketers coming out of p thought about three layers or levels of marketing. You know, the first is advertising. Your local in- personal injury lawyer advertises on <laughs> city-, city buses and billboards and whatnot. Next level is marketing where an organization is actually working to build a market. And we hear a lot about how innovative marketers, marketing spaces, having two competitors Co build it, you know, Uber and Lyft it makes a lot of sense. And at the top level, you're talking about branding, how you both build a market and a brand. When I was at Centene, I was hired as the first chief marketing officer. And after a couple of years, we started doing consumer journey mapping and segmentation. And we realized, and Vincent, I'd love your take on this, talking about the healthcare consumer experience, but we realized that you can't market your way out of a crappy consumer experience and healthcare is, you know, at the bottom of the list, whether you're looking at Siegel and Gales brand simplicity index or the Temkin experience rankings. And so we said, okay, we're going to change the name of my role from chief marketing officer to chief experience officer. And it made me think about instead of a marketing continuum, an experience continuum. And at the bottom is transactions. If you're going to a sporting event, you need to be able to buy tickets and that they need to not be counterfeit. But then you get into engagement. Are you reading stories about the players or about your teams? Mm -hmm. And then at the top, you want to be in a relationship with the brand. Are you buying gear? And I think entertainment brands, whether it's sports or movies, have a great opportunity to get into that relationship space pretty quickly. For other categories, that's more difficult. But whether you're talking about interpersonal relationships at work, or you're talking about trying to build and grow your brand, thinking about that continuum from transaction to engagement to relationship is a good framework to think about what work do you need to do? Have you built the foundation? You can't get to relationship if your transactions don't work. Yep. And you can't really get to relationship if you can't engage well. So that's just a model that I've been using over the past decade or so to think about how should we do things differently, especially in the wake of COVID when technology adoption has really accelerated. We're in a very different world today than we were in 2019, which is a different world than where we were in in 2007. So before I lecture for the next 45 minutes on the evolution of marketing over the last 100 years. I'd like to get your take, Vincent, on what do you think about the healthcare consumer experience?
1: I think there's much to be left for the experience and plenty of opportunity. I think healthcare is a tough industry, as you know, because it's so highly regulated. When you take a look at how dollars flow, how things are funded, there's the pool between the member, or the patient experience and the shareholders. And that's even in many instances where payment might be through a social need program or through a government program. And what I love about like your story in terms of focusing on the experience is that great marketers at their core are storytellers. They're storytellers about and The story that they're telling is the transformation of an individual or a company, or even in some B2B selling, the story of a person within a company of how does their life improve with a specific product or service? And fundamentally, even if it's down to that plumber that's doing the billboard, I can tell you... If my toilet is clogged, my life is improving if that toilet gets unclogged and there's a story there. And the best stories are the ones, I think like the one that I put up on the screen. So Jason Pfeiffer, Editor-in-Chief, Entrepreneur Magazine, made this post on LinkedIn the other day of, quite frankly, I think one of the best consumer branding companies out there. And it's nothing fake. And it's actually nothing in terms of like even the content that they put out or what you would traditionally think of as marketing. You know, this is a tweet that went viral on Twitter that says I contacted Chewy last week to see if I could return an unopened bag of my dog's food after he had died. They gave me a full refund, told me to donate the food to a shelter and three head flowers delivered today with a gift note signed by the person that I talked to. This customer service agent sent This customer flowers, and that person was the person that signed the card. And you think of this individual story as, okay, you have one employee, one individual who is empowered to make this incredible decision. And when you back up and you actually understand the Chewy strategy, Chewy actually sends thousands of these cards out every single month. So this is not an accident of one thing that happened. This is talking about systematically creating an experience that's human to human, that's authentic, that includes empathy. And, you know, gosh, like this person will not only be a chewy customer for life, and they'll think twice before they buy their dog food anywhere else, even if Costco has a better price on it. But on top of that, this is like the epitome of net promoter score. It's one thing to be able to recommend a service to your family and friends. It's another thing to shout from the rooftops to tell everybody that you know about a story like this.
2: I mean, that's amazing. And we were talking before about the difference between CFOs and CMOs. And I think part of it is as business leaders, the chief marketing officer title has three different words because there's three buckets of work that we do. First and foremost, we're an officer of the company. We've got a fiduciary and strategic responsibility for the company. Second, we're a chief. We have responsibilities to build bridges and bust down barriers, both internally as well as with external partners. And then marketing, we've got to be functional area experts. But I think CFOs tend to think of, I've got a responsibility first to my shareholders and then my customers and then my employees. And I think as marketers, I would encourage us to follow the Southwest airlines model, which is we put employees first because if our employees aren't happy, they can't make customers happy and we put them second. Because if we don't have happy customers, we're not going to have happy shareholders. And it's still the same top three stakeholders that we think about, but reordering them in our mind. And we say, hey, we got to keep our employees and our customers really happy. And we need to be human and empathetic, and we need to listen first and speak second, creates competitive advantage when you can build that culture in your organization. and It's a great case study you just shared with Chewy. And yes, I have two dogs and we are Chewy customers.
1: (laughs) (laughs) That's exactly right. I think that's where when you take a look at bringing that Chewy experience to life, there's really three separate functions that are necessary to even be able to have a story like that. You know, A, there's a budget decision, right? It's not free to be able to send out flowers to people who are returning products. And typically in business, you don't send free gifts to people (laughs) who return your products. Number two, you have the execution of a customer service organization that sometimes falls into a marketing organization, most of the time does not for larger organizations. And then you have the third, which is the marketing organization that's really taking a look at how does brand come to life. But the days of the CMO just being a brand thought leader that provides a theoretical exercise about the the value of having a good brand are really behind us. And you kind of alluded to earlier, and I would agree with you that I think the number one skill set that I picked up after I started a marketing career is really my financial acumen and my ability to be able to create financial models, which if you would have told me as a young marketer, that would be the thing that would lead to being able to have a seat at the table. I would have been shocked at the time because those are not the skills that you traditionally learn first in marketing.
2: Right. I mean, I was lucky at Procter & Gamble. we were taught to be little general managers. So I was lucky to get that early in my career on the job, but it's a skill that you've got to keep with you because at the end of the day, no profit, no
1: purpose, right? A hundred percent. And same thing. I was lucky. One of my first jobs early in my career was with Best Buy. And I think that's some of the advantages of these larger programs is I had my first PL, I think at the age of like 18, which is wild. Now, granted, it'd be one of the smallest PLs that I've right. been responsible for, but a PNL nonetheless and teaches you that owner mentality pretty early. And not everybody is fortunate to be able to benefit from a company like PNG or Best Buy that has this structure and like the mentorship early on. When you think about the role of the career of a CMO. You've made this jump over to a consultant role. Tell me about what led to that decision. Marketers always throughout their entire career have the in-house option or the agency route. And the consulting route, oftentimes when people think of freelance marketers, you really think of the freelance designer or the freelance copywriter. Mm -hmm. But not too many people know about kind of this other area of consulting freelance type work.
2: Yeah. So I had spent nine years at Centene, a lot of growth from five to $113 billion. And I had the opportunity to transition out of there and took some time off to think about what I wanted to do. And I started getting calls from people on my network saying, Hey man, I know you're kind of between gigs right now. We've got a business problem. Do you think you can help us out? And I'm like, sure. Right. And the reality is CMOs, any C-suite officer are expensive. And not every organization needs a chief marketing officer. And a lot of organizations can get away with a highly skilled VP of marketing who does the marketing technical things really, really well to keep that organization going. And maybe they've got a chief growth officer, chief commercial officer who's more sales oriented and they don't necessarily need a full time CMO. But every once in a while, whether it's for annual strategic planning or maybe a three-year strategic plan. They need somebody with that strategic level thinking and experience to help guide and educate the president, the CEO, someone who has experience negotiating with CFOs (laughs) and has the ability to talk about how marketing is not a cost center. It's an investment in growth, and we can provide counsel and add value for a fraction of the cost of hiring somebody full-time, especially for organizations who are just dipping their toe into the CMO world. They're going to hire somebody probably who hasn't had experience as a CMO. Clients who hire me have the, and my colleagues, so there's 14 of us at the CMO syndicate right now. They hire us to help solve problems and they can do it on a project basis. Hey, we need to help articulating the DNA of our company. Why do we really exist? What do we really do? What do we really believe or positioning projects? Or they can hire us for fractional work. So, hey, we want to hire you for a day a week for the next six months to help us train and develop the organization and build out the organization and interact with the C-suite. Or you can hire us full time for a period of time. Like if you're in a transition Maybe you know you've got a VP of marketing who's going to be ready in a year, but is not quite ready yet. And you can come in and make decisions, set the example, and develop the person behind you. The benefit of hiring an organization like the CMO Syndicate, rather than just a solo practitioners, we all talk to each other. We generally put two or three CMOs on a project together, even if there's one lead and somebody has expertise in an industry. There might be others in our group that have expertise in that solving that particular problem. So, for me, having worked alone for about a year, the thing that you miss about being a part of an organization, Vincent, is it's like we were talking about before, where's the water? Having cooler? a team. Chat. <laughs> yeah, where's the yeah. team? Now I have the benefit of being able to do a series of kind of high level, really interesting problem solving and relationship building while also being part of a team that's making me better. And I get to make them better. We're all learning from each other. One of my areas of of expertise is in purpose, helping to articulate an organization's why. And we've got a couple other people and all of our processes were slightly different. And, you know, there's pros and cons of all that. And so now we get to build a process that's got the best of all three worldviews. And we can do this work faster and better than hiring an agency that's got a bunch of 26-year-olds working on the project.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Not that there's anything wrong with 26-year-olds for anybody. No, no. I I mean, like like we were saying, you've
2: got to build your career chops somehow. Uh And if you have a long-term relationship with an agency on the client side, it might be super beneficial to work with the agency to build that purpose and other brand architecture. That's what I did at Centene. I led the Purpose Project, but it was in conjunction with my long-term agency partners who were going to help us to execute on the backside. But if you don't have a strong agency relationship, you just need the help to get the work done, then we're a great solution to come in and help get it done cost-effectively.
1: Yeah, and I've had a lot of conversations with individuals who are thinking about dipping their toes into this fractional CMO-type work. The fractional CFO is pretty well known just because so many startups have a fractional CFO, but oftentimes don't think of or don't hear of this type of role in marketing because the smaller organizations typically will just hire a marketing manager or a marketing director. And the marketing manager or marketing director might be really great at the day-to-day tactics, tactics being like managing a paid media strategy with an agency. When you back up and you take a look at where is the fit for a new product in a market or how do you shift across acquisition channels from what you're using today to something that has a lower customer acquisition cost three to five years from now, but also scales. Those are the types of scenarios where I've seen fractional CMOs are really great to be able to come in and be able to show scaled out or across different channels, how does an overarching strategy come to life, which oftentimes can be executed by an in-house team or an in-house team partnering with an agency afterwards.
2: That's totally right. And I think when I think about the evolution of marketing over the last hundred years, we spent almost 80 years strictly in an interruptive model. This is mm-hmm. the original soap opera sponsorship on radio <laughs> and on TV. And that interruptive model through the 80s was really effective because there was only three major networks. Major networks, yeah. Right. Three networks and PBS. And then Fox came in in the late 80s. But by the end of the 80s, over half of US households had cable TV. So fragmentation was starting to exist there. And then we moved into the next era. Seth Godin in 1999 wrote about permission marketing. And In 1999, which is really only about five years into broad scale internet adoption, and really this was all dial up and AOL kind of interaction, opting into marketing messages made a lot of sense. Mm -hmm. But how many emails do you get a day, Vincent, in your inbox that you've opted (laughs) into that you actually read? You get a lot, you don't read a lot of them. So the permission marketing idea has really turned into just the next type of interruptive marketing. Mm -hmm. But I think nowadays, there's a new model emerging after the rise of the smartphone and ease of internet access, which I've got a client that calls receptive marketing. And really, if you've got the right tools to meet consumers where they are, which is on a Google search or another search engine search, and you've got insights from search behavior, and you can create content and serve it up the way they want it when they're looking for it, not when you're trying to feed it to them. We're just saying at P&G that content is king, but context is queen. It's all You got to marry the content with the context, and you can do that. I think a lot of SEO companies, search engine optimization companies, try to tell you that they do that, but some are better than others. This client I'm working with called Terakeet got their start in SEO, but what they're doing now, they call owned asset optimization. So how do we look at your entire digital footprint and optimize for it? And the reality is there are a lot of marketing organizations that don't even own their digital assets. It might belong to communications or the CDO chief digital officer, or this chief information officer, chief technical officer. And the reality is your website and your social media presence is the most guaranteed way to build a relationship. We talked about that experience continuum earlier to build a relationship and connect brands with their audience in a way that matters. I think if you're just doing technical SEO or you're just a VP of performance marketing, you're thinking about clicks, you're not thinking about relationships. And I think that's another way, another example of how a CMO can help an organization at the highest level of the organization reimagine the way they're dealing with their marketing function.
1: I 100% agree with that. It is interesting because I was walking with a coworker last night, he brings up this new Netflix special. It's about bike racing. He's a cycler. And it was a show that I had not even heard of. And it kind of made me just realize the same thing that you had just said, that this transition from three major networks where everybody's watching one of those three shows that are on primetime. And it used to be you'd go to work and you'd talk about it the next day, similar to like a sporting event. But now with the streaming options that are available, your ability to be able to go find cooking enthusiasts through cooking shows and YouTube channels and get really, really granular about who you're messaging to is kind of the world that we're living in right now. And the world that we're living right now in is rapidly changing as well because of generative AI. And we're just in the first few steps of it. Today, there are TV shows by interest And I was talking with somebody a few months ago that where they were talking about in their studios, like film television studio, they're exploring the idea of saying, how do you generate a TV show for an individual person? We know David likes to travel. We know David likes to cook. These are the things that David's interested in. Can we create a show that's actually uniquely generated for David? And maybe even David swings by and does a 15 minute full body scan in one of these locations and David can actually like be a character in this show and that just like blew my mind because the days of buy a billboard and just put it up and everybody will drive by and see it those billboards will still exist but we're heading into this world where the limit of the tactics that you can use are just mind-blowingly complex but also personalized and then you also have to weigh that with the balance of consumer privacy. And just because a tactic is more complex doesn't necessarily mean it's gonna be more effective, which I think is the danger there too, because at the end of the day, experience and message is still king. Doesn't matter if you tailor that to an individual person and it's like spot on to that person. If the experience sucks or the messaging sucks,
2: I think that's right on. And I think ever since Seth Godin wrote Permission Marketing at the end of 99, I'm like, there's always been this dream of this 100% one-to-one personalization. But I got to tell you, Vincent, I won't poo-poo that. I think there's value Excuse there. Me. But in the eight categories or so that I've done segmentation in, almost all of them break down to five broad segments. Yep. So do you have a business that needs one-on-one personalization? If you do, then go for it. But if you're selling toilet paper, you probably don't need one-on-one personalization. (laughs) You just need to understand your five segments and design a product that meets the needs of those five segments or the two segments that you're going to target. And then you target those individuals and you grow your business. So I think it is a balancing act between one-to-one versus one-to-many and just being deliberate and discreet about the values of many that you're going after.
1: Yeah, I think that's spot on and goes back to experimentation and measuring outcomes is key yes. and let the data be the guide. But just because something doesn't cost more to do, I think there's a tax on the team that's building it when something is super complex. You think Absolutely. about how many more conversations have to happen. You think about the number of things that could break or go wrong and you know the planning around it. You know, definitely weighs on the team when you make things increasingly more complex. David, thank you so much for joining us today on this episode. If somebody wants to follow your story or connect with you, where's the best place to be able to connect?
2: On LinkedIn. There are not a lot of Minifees. So just do the search. <laughs> you can connect with me. You can send me a message. And I'm also on Twitter at Take. M I N I F I E S T. A K E. I'm not super active there, but if you send me a message, you know, they'll alert me.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Awesome. Well, it's been a pleasure to have you on and thanks so much for taking the time.
2: It is my pleasure, Vincent. It's great to meet you and great to be here.
1: Likewise.
0: This has been Destination CMO hosted by Vincent Fanfan. Because marketing careers are often highly specialized and rarely linear. Destination CMO invites senior marketers to share stories and insights from their professional journey. If you liked this episode, join the community by following us on social media. We have links to all our platforms in the show notes. And join us next time for the most important stories in business and tech, explained through the lens of a senior marketer. Thanks for listening to Destination CMO. This podcast is produced by Caroline Pickens and the team at Fresh Picked Studio. For more information, go to freshpickedstudio.com.